Likuti Sichais, Chelikes, Volume 15, the fifth Sicha for Parshas Vayishlach. This is a Rashi Sicha with a very interesting explanation from Chasidus at the end. It would be worthwhile to go over the Psukim, the verses in the beginning of Parshas Toldois, which describe the birth and the difference between Yaakov and Esau. Over there, the Prophet says to Rivka, Shnei goyim bevitnech. There are two nations in your womb. And two nations, two nationalities, will split from your womb. And one nation will be stronger, will be more powerful than the other nation. However, the older one will always serve the younger one. Now over there, the word goyim is spelled without the vav. So it could also be read gayim, which means great people. And Rashi says that this is a reference to the two great people, one from the descendants of Esau from Edom, that's Rome, and the other one, a descendant, of course, of Yaakov, both of them are Antoninus and the famous great Tana Rebbe, Rabbi Yehudi, Rabbi Yehuda HaKadosh. So let's get into the Sicha. So in the end of our Parsha, it lists over there, quote, all the Mlachim, all the kings that ruled for the nation of Edom, for the descendants of Esau, Lifnei Meloich Melech Levnei Yisrael, prior to there ever being a king to the children of Yisrael, the children of Yaakov. One of them, in the list of the kings, is Yoivov ben Zarach mi Botsra. Yoivov, the son of Zarach from Botsra. So Rashi comments on these words, Yoivov ben Zarach mi Botsra, and he says, Botsra is from the cities of Moyav, as it says, Val Kroyos Val Botsra. This is a verse which describes the downfall of Edom, and in the list of the various cities that are going to be afflicted by Hashem at the end of time, when Hashem brings down punishment over Edom for what they've done to the children of Israel. Over there he lists Kroyes and Batsra, but these are from the cities of Moyov. So Rashi proves that Batsra is from Moyov. And Rashi continues, Since it uh, provided a king for the nation of Edom, therefore it's going to be afflicted together with them, as it says, Ki zevach Lashem b'batsra that there will be, so to speak, a celebration for Hashem in Batra at the end of days when Hashem will wreak uh, punishment on Edom, and including with them will be Batra. So the question is, why does Rashi have to explain this at all? In other words, what is this relevant to us to know that Batra is actually not from Edom, but rather from Moyov, that Yoyov's descendant, that his pedigree was from Batra, not from Edom? There are those commentaries that explain that the reason that compelled Rashi to do so is in order to explain to us why it says that Yoivov was from Batsra. And therefore Rashi explains this. However, this explanation is problematic. Why? Because this in itself is questionable. What point is there? Why do we have to know this? That it's going to be afflicted together with them, quote unquote. 
that Batra is going to be punished alongside Edom. What value does this have for Pshutei Shal Mikra? And number two, and this is the main question, by all the kings of Edom, in the entire list of the kings of Edom, it all names, by each one of them, it names their descent and where they're from. And Rashi doesn't say anything. Rashi doesn't comment, comment anything at all. And therefore it's understood that from the perspective of Pshat, of Pshutish and Mikra, there's no question at all. There's no need to know why they were named from the place they were named from. In other words, why the Pasuk made it a point to tell us where the descent was from, because Rashi doesn't comment anything. So the question comes back to the original question, why here? Why does Rashi find it necessary to explain this to us and to tell us that they'll be afflicted together with Edom, but that Yoivav indeed was not from Edom, rather he was from elsewhere. So in order to understand this, we have to actually explain something which goes back to an earlier verse, in an earlier Parsha, which explains the difference and the greatness of in the, in the greatness, in the pedigree of Edom versus Yisroel, the descendants of Esau versus the descendants of Yaakov. In the verse it says, Shnei goyim there are two nations in your womb, and two peoples, two nations will separate from your womb, and one people will, shall be mightier than the other. However, but the greater one, meaning the older one, will always serve the younger one. So on the words, Rashi explains what does that mean, that one one nation will always be stronger than the other nation. So Rashi explains that it means that they will never be equal in greatness, meaning these two nations that will come out from your womb, this is what's being told to Rivka, they will never be equal in their stature. When one falls, one will rise. When the other falls, then this one will rise. However, on the words, that the younger one will always serve, the, the older one will always serve the younger one, Rashi doesn't explain anything at all. And of course, the obvious question is, how does this fit in in the previous clause of the verse? The previous clause of the verse, Rashi clearly explains that, it, that it's telling us that one will be greater when one, when one will be greater, the other will fall. When the other will fall, the other will be greater. So how does this consistent, how do we reconcile this with the end of the verse that always, absolutely always, there will, there will be a fact that the older one will worship the younger one? The answer is that on the words shnei gayim, which like we mentioned in the introduction, is spelled without a vav, which can also be read, shnei, read Shnei Gaim, two great people. Rashi explains that this is a reference to Antoninus and Rebbe, that it's talking about the two individuals, and that Shnei Le'umen, Rashi says, this means Malchius, this means kingdoms. And this is not just merely, so to speak, being repeated for poetic effect, but rather it's talking about two different things. Shnei Gaim is talking about Yaakov and Esau, and their descendants as individuals, as people. Whereas Le'um, Shnei Le'umim, two nations, this is talking about them as nations, Yaakov and Esau as kingdoms. And according to this, it's understood 
These are two different things the verse is telling us. As far as the two kingdoms are concerned, that is indeed the fact that when one rises, the other will fall. As far as, however, the individuals, the shnei goyim bevitnech, that will always consistently be without fail, verav that the older one will always serve the younger one. This is going to be a continuous, constant thing. And this, in fact, helps us understand why when Esau came in crying and said, please, Father, give me a blessing, some blessing, and Yitzhak said to him, I can't help you. He has been established as the Rav, as the greater one, and therefore you're established now as the younger one. There's nothing I can do for him, for you. You are going to be his servant forever, indefinitely. But according to this, we have a question. In other words, this is where the reason for Rashi's explanation here in our verse comes to light. In other words, this is the source of the problem why Rashi felt compelled that he has to explain. The question is, over here we have a whole list of all the kings of Edom, all the kings that, that were, were crowned for Edom generation after generation, and as it says, prior to the fact that there was ever an established king for the children of Israel. So the question, and then when there was a king for the children of Israel, the whole entire kingship, the whole monarchy, the whole succession of monarchy for Edom was abolished. So the question is, because of this verse, Verav Yavit Sawyer that the older one will worship the younger one, the question is, how is it possible that there were in fact kings from Edom? When according to this edict, according to this decree of Rav Yavit Sawyer, none of them should have ever rise to greatship. None of them should ever rise to kingship. So therefore, the verse makes a point to indicate the place of origin of each king to make it clear to make it obvious that not one of these kings of Edom originated in Edom. Each one of them was a transplant from elsewhere. Each one of them was not an individual that was a descendant from Esau, and therefore the fact that they rose to great ship, that is not a contradiction, that is not in contrast to this idea of Verav Yavit Sawyer, that the older one will worship the younger one, because none of them ever rose to kingship. However, when it comes to Yoivov, this particular king who is from Batsra, over here there's a question. Because the verse names him as Yoivov ben Zorach, the son of Zorach. Now we do find in the Alufi Esau, in the list of the heads of the clans, of the heads of the families, the descendants of Esau, we do find the Zorach. So there may be some indication that this Yoivov is the son of that Zorach. And if that's the case, then we would go back to the question, how is it possible that he rose to great ship when it says, Verav Yavit Sawyer? And another thing, another question, many places we find Batsra, the city of his origin, in association with Edom, in close association with Edom. And therefore, we would seem to imply that he is indeed a direct descendant of Esau. That's what compelled Rashi to explain that this Batsra is not a place of Edom. This Batsra actually, although it's many times associated with, with uh, Edom, but in fact it is from Moya, from a totally different nation. But because they're going to be afflicted 
they're going to be punished alongside with Edom, therefore they become typically associated with Edom, but they're not in Edom. They're not from Edom. So this now helps us understand why Rashi felt compelled to explain it and what is the purpose of this explanation. This is to point out that this is consistent with the list that none of the kings of Edom were indeed from Edom, but rather they were all from elsewhere, transplants from other nations. Now, however, we need to understand in this idea that we said before, Virav Yavitsoyer, that the older one will worship the younger one. The older one will always be subservient to the younger one, meaning Esav will always be subservient to Yaakov, and this applies to all times without fail. The question is now on something totally separate. How is it that in the beginning of our Parsha, Yaakov sends a message to Esav, and he says to the messengers, tell Esav, so you should say to my master, to Esau. And what should you tell him? So says your servant, Yaakov. In other words, this is the exact opposite of Verav Yavitzoyer, that the older one should serve the younger one. Here, Yaakov is subserviating himself to Esau. Now, as far as the Pshat is concerned, you can, we can answer this. And we can say, look, remember Yaakov was fearful that perhaps he was not deserving of all Hashem's kindness, right? If he says, he said, hasodim, he says, I feel so inadequate and so small from all the kindness you have done to me. And like Rashi says, he was concerned, Shema maybe the sin will cause, so, causes it so that I am not deserving of all the kindness of Hashem. So perhaps you can apply that here too, that he felt that maybe because of the sin, he is not desert, deserving of the fulfillment of this promise that was given to his mother of Rav Yavitzavir. Okay, so according to Pshat, we could answer this away. However, the Medrash says that the fact that Yaakov made himself subservient to Esau in this verse that he said, he called Esau his master, and he referred to himself as the servant of Esau, in fact, he was punished for this. But you, we can understand that this doesn't mean literally that Yaakov sinned. Because we know that Yaakov, alongside, as well as all the other Avais, were all considered a Merkava to godliness, like a, a chariot, so to speak, to Hashem. That they didn't have a will of their own, and whatever they did was an absolute co- consistent and absolutely in line with Hashem's will. So how do we explain it? That on the one hand, Yaakov Avinu does this, and the Medrash says that he was, quote-unquote, punished. There was some... Um, so to speak, some retribution for this. There was a price to pay for this. But on the other hand, that Yaakov was not in any way sinful for having done so. So the Rebbe says that in Chassidus it's explained that really the Shoydesh of Esau, meaning the high, so- the Esau, the point from where Esau descends, meaning the, the source in heaven, in the spiritual realms, Esau is actually greater. Esau is actually higher than Yaakov. And that actually explains why Esau was born first. However, when Yaakov, I'm saying therefore, when Yaakov is able to be mevarer, he's able to cleanse, so to speak, he's able to elevate the aspect of Esau, then the great light of Esau, meaning he's able to tap into the source of Esau, from where he really comes in the spiritual realm, then he's able to bring out this great, tremendous 
uh, spiritual light which overpowers and overwhelms the actual manifestation of Esau in this world, which is bad. And with this we could understand why Yaakov sent the message that he sent to Esau. He was not saying it, sending it to Esau in his manifestation here in this world. He was sending it to Esau. He was sending it to the Shodesh of Esau, to the source of Esau, to the high level from which Esau originally descends from, that is indeed greater than his own. And indeed there he is subservient to it because he is of a lower level. He comes from a lower level. However, we need to understand then, then why was he punished? If he was doing the right thing, what kind of punishment or what kind of negative result could there be from this when in fact this is a good thing, this is the case? The answer is as follows. In the victory of, bad, of the good over bad, meaning in the process of defeating the bad, the darkness of the world, there are two modes. There are two ways to achieve this. There are two ways to accomplish this. One way is by a gilui or by revealing such an intense, such an immense light that the, meaning the mevar, the person who seeks, who's out there, who seeks to, to seeks to elevate the bad, shines, so to speak, reveals such a great, tremendous spiritual light, such a great uh, uh, spiritual energy that the bad dissolves, that the bad becomes, so to speak, pushed away. In other words, you don't get directly involved with the bad. You don't get down to the bad's level. But from where you are, from where you're perched, so to speak, in this high spiritual realm, you shine down a very strong light and it overwhelms the dark. That's one manner. Another manner of doing it is in a way, in the Chesedes it's called Bedarech Islapshus, by getting, so to speak, directly involved. That the Mevader, the one who's seeking to elevate the bad, actually goes down, so to speak, to the place of the misbar of that object, of that person, of that thing that he's trying to elevate. And therefore, you have to lower yourself to, quote, the place of darkness. Now, each one of these two has an advantage on the other. When you say, from the perspective of the person who's doing the work, it's obvious that the first mode is superior. Why? Because in this case, he doesn't have to lower himself. He doesn't have to get directly involved in the dark. He doesn't have to get directly entangled with the bad because he is perched from his high place and he's just shining a very strong light. Like the words of the Alter Rebbe in Tanya where he says that Hamis Abikim in Nuvul Misnabel. If somebody, if somebody has a tug of war with a dirty person, with a bad person, you also, without any other option, you also tend to get dirtied. In other words, you tend to get soiled. So therefore, this has an advantage when you are from a distance, so to speak. You're not getting directly involved. You're not going in direct contact with the bad. However, when you look at it from the other hand, the other mode has a tremendous advantage, meaning from the perspective of the thing that you're elevating, or the person you're elevating, when you get directly involved, when the good goes down to the bad, and gets directly entrenched with the bad, then when it's effective, the bad itself becomes transformed. You see, in the first mode, in the first option, the bad doesn't really get transformed, it just gets pushed away. Whereas in this option, it actually becomes elevated, it becomes transformed, it, and mission becomes fully accomplished. The ultimate 
purpose of Torah mitzvahs is, quote, lasois shalom ba'olam, to bring about shalom, peace in the world. What is peace? When you take two opposites and you bring them together. That's where you need peace. The world itself, oilam, is a helem, is a concealment of godliness, right? That represents the darkness, the bad. And we need the Torah and mitzvahs are here for us to bring, quote-unquote, peace to the world that the concealment and godliness should actually transform and become a helpful party in the revelation of godliness. And since, where do we see this? We see the Torah itself. As the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, that Nasa v'yordo lamata, the Torah itself, so to speak, traveled to a great distance and it lowered itself down here into this world. And as it says in the Pasuk, Hashem describes this situation in the verse that it says, kol malbushai egalti, that all my garments, so to speak, I have soiled. And it's interesting, in this word egalti, you also hear a sounding of the word geula, which actually is connected, that Hashem says, so to speak, I lowered my shechina, I lowered my Torah into the world, and I allowed it, so to speak, to become somewhat soiled by getting involved in the darkness and the bad of the world, in order for it to eventually achieve egalti, that it should, able, it should be able to totally redeem them and bring about the geula. Just like Hashem does it, of course, as we know, tzaddikim doimim leboiram. The tzaddikim are very similar, quote, to their creator. That just like Hashem chose to do this, so too they choose to go down to lower themselves, so to speak, into the darkness in order to bring about, in order to achieve a total transformation of the bad and therefore to bring about the geula, to bring the geula closer. And the ultimate transformation of Esau will be when Esau will eventually admit and agree to this idea 